Every day, thousands of vehicles, pedestrians, and cyclists cross the Brooklyn Bridge. But how much does anyone traversing the span know about its history? Hi, I'm George Bodarki, and this is Cityscape. Photographer and author Barbara Mensch has lived alongside the Brooklyn Bridge for more than three decades. But over time, she wanted to do more than simply take photos of the legendary structure. She wanted to dig into the minds and lives of those who built it. The result is her new book, In the Shadow of Genius, The Brooklyn Bridge and Its Creators. Barbara, thanks so much for coming in to talk with me. Oh, thank you so much. So you quite literally lived in the shadow of genius? Yes, I have. And yes, I have been living in a maritime warehouse very close to the bridge. And it's been a remarkable experience. I've been there for over 35 years. And of course, I've watched the neighborhood transform. But yet the bridge endures. That's the most striking aspect of of this whole story is that the world keeps spinning, spinning, out of control, whatever words you want to use to to describe it. And yet one of the, the most fascinating things for me was to understand as the years went by that through the floods and the hurricanes and the torrential storms and the, 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 the variety and diverse amounts of um, heat and energy and construction and people, that the bridge still stands. And it's, it's beauty, strength, and uh, inspiration is there. So what questions would you ponder while you looked out at the bridge? Well, the first question is always a, a spiritual one for me, you know, and that is because I've had the great Gothic towers outside the window, you know, they always gave me a sense of peace and serenity. And, you know, the basic form itself uh, has always been very visually compelling. But more than that, the windows and the roof were always my places of vision and experience of the bridge from different angles and different sight lines. So not only did I have a view of the towers in the East River, but also the remarkable structure, the stone structure leading up to the span of the bridge, which is both the anchorage and the approach. And I've always had a relationship with those mysterious shutters that were sometimes open and closed that you could see from the sides um, of of the 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 walls of the structure. And for me, that always held a certain kind of foreboding and mysteriousness. And part of my early experiences that I I uh, write about in the book and also. Uh, show a small portfolio of images where the pictures I took deep within the belly, <laughs> the the soul of the Brooklyn Bridge, and that experience of being inside and getting the opportunity to photograph in there for several months really set me off on a trajectory about not only how did this amazing bridge get built, but all these questions started to come at me one by one. And that was, I really wanted to learn about who this man named John Roebling was and what was his relationship. How did he make this bridge? How did he design it? And what, who was his son? What did, what did his son contribute? And all the mythic 
tales, this this history, which has so much been, um, I can't use the word maligned, but deceptively incorrect about not only John Roebling, his son, but also his wife, Emily. So much of the material that we've read is simply not true, or to to be more specific, not as correct as we should think it. It's not as correct as what we read. In other words, what you read sometimes in these places like Wikipedia or these different blogs or whatever is not the information that is really correct. So, Barbara, what would you say are the biggest misconceptions when it comes to the story of the Roeblings, and how did you dispel them? Well, the some of the there are many misconceptions, but basically, the one that is the most tragic <laughs> is the fact that over time, people conflate the father and the son into one person. John Roebling was the father, the, the immigrant from, uh, he was a German immigrant. At that time, it was called Prussia, from this part of, uh, which is now Germany, which is now in central Germany, but for years was part of the East German Federation. He was the immigrant who came here with his utopian ideals, and I don't know if we have time in this broadcast for for the whole remarkable autobiography, uh, the whole remarkable story of John Roebling. But basically, he never came close to putting a, a stone on the bridge or giving an order, a directive, because he died way before the bridge was ever constructed. And what he left behind were these untested and untried plans and drawings, and some of them which appear in the book. Um, And the responsibility was left to his firstborn son, who, in terms of the immigrant quest in America or the culture that they bring from Europe, it's usually, and you probably experience this maybe in your own family, the responsibility and the sense of carrying on the legacy of the family always falls to the firstborn Mm -hmm. son, no matter what. Did his son have the experience, the background? Yes, the father made him. The father who became, uh, who we we know from Washington Roebling's memoirs, which were not available to uh, some of the major historians when they wrote their books. Um, We know, you have to take everything, of course, with a grain of salt, but he had a tremendous amount of rage against his father, who turned out to be a tyrannical, to some extent, maniac, you know, who um, had all kinds of anger issues. He, his personality tended to be very, he was a very intractable human being. He had, uh, but there are reasons for that that I tried to uncover when I went back to Mulhausen. His story forever intrigues me, and there are things in his own personality that I can really relate to. Such as what? He has a workaholic... The the thing about the German work ethic uh, that I uncovered, because I have some close friends that that live there, there's a 
a, a work ethic that I can see that appears to be remarkable. And you can also translate that work ethic into workaholism, you know. And the father was the epitome, he was the epitome of both a workaholic and someone who was a real problem solver and would get very frustrated if his, uh, his in his early work, which appears in the book, I had to find some of his earlier, um, the whatever remained of his remarkable first breakthroughs in technology here in America in so far that he built early aqueducts he he and he's best known for his manufacture of wire rope mm-hmm. which changed the face of American technology particularly um at the end of the 1800s and into the 20th century with the advent of um, wire rope used in elevators and construction and nautical equipment in the wings of airplanes. I mean, everywhere you look, you see wire rope. And it was his fascination with the product because of his early experiences living in Pennsylvania. Um, do you want to hear about that? <laughs> or should we continue on? Give with me a little bit the, about that, sure. Well, he um, initially came to the States and settled with his brother, and their goal was to create this, what we call a utopian community. Uh, even though he was trained as a as an engineer, he went to the University of Berlin, where, uh, according to myth, he was Hegel's best student, but I don't know, or we'll never know if that's really the truth. It's not in the official record that that ever happened. But basically, at that time, all the young people in Europe were very caught up after the French Revolution in separating from religion and organized religion. And of course, we all know about the Enlightenment and this whole movement in Europe and in America where people started what was called a sense of thinking for yourself and Freedom didn't just mean not listening to the autocrats. It meant in coming up with your own ideas and a sense of purpose and a sense of invention, a sense of discovery. So Roebling was very captivated by Hegel's um, definitions of the histo- of what history was. And in that definition, Hegel actually inspired these young people to go to America because it's only there that their their ideas and the resources would become available to them. So Roebling, who at the early age of 16, 17 was already, you know, 19, was already proposing great bridges over the Rhine River and he, his, his imagination and um, determination and fascination were were. were boundless. He, he just had all of this energy, but yet nothing could be done there. Mm. It was the old guard and, you know, everything was bureaucracy. So in a leap of faith, and, you know, I'm trying to shorten the story, and he had these remarkable encounters with Johann Etzler, who was also a very early pioneer of harnessing the resources of Mother Nature to create something that could bring eternal peace 
In other words, you, you find a way to connect with nature through how you can use it. So he was a real early environmentalist, there's no doubt. So the point is, they came here to implement some of these ideas. But in order to do that, he had to be a farmer. You know, you have to, you're going to settle, you're going to bring these German pilgrims, you know, and he was not a farmer. And also he started a family, you know, you're out in the middle of the wilderness. So very early on, his world around him began to shatter his dreams for this community. People weren't coming. They he couldn't grow anything, you know, and all these stories I put in there about his growing frustration and anger with himself. So getting back to how this connects to Wire Row is that over time he started looking for new employment and he did register um, um, in, in um, Harrisburg as an engineer and tried to get a job as a surveyor. He he offered his surveying skills. So he finally did get work. And um, so to fast forward a little bit, there was um, at that time in America, before the advent of the railroad, the great iron horse pushing west, the idea of a portage railroad, which would take, if you cannot get the railroad locomotive engine over the big giant slopes of the Alleghenies, what you can do is haul up the cars and the people. And then the, the it was also called the gravity railroad. So it kind of had this, this experience of you haul them up and then they'll come down mm-hmm. and manage mm-hmm. the speed at which they come down. It's a fascinating but very short-lived um, part of the American tech, early the early technology in, in transportation. So one day he watched the hemp rope on one of the cars break and it it speed down the hill and crushed two men like they were crushed. Mm. So that got him... It was uh, his eureka moment. <laughs> yes, that's it. It was a eureka moment because, again, most people think that he invented wire rope. I've heard some very eminent scholars make that mistake. He didn't. He was an avid reader. He was a magazine guy. And he had this magazine. He used to read everything. So there was this miner named William Allard who was mining in the Hartz Mountains who came up with the drew diagrams. Well, what if we use wire and twist the wire into, you know, maybe that will work so we can haul the cars up through the through the 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 abyss of the caves anyway he remembered reading about that and um then began his quest to figure out how to design and manufacture a product which of course wasn't easy when you lived in the middle of nowhere and you had access to very little so his story is quite remarkable how he fought his way to the top and became America's most eminent engineer in suspension bridge design, in the design of wire rope, and, of course, in all the other inventions that we'll never know of unless you really go into his archive, which became for me quite 
remarkable because I felt I was experiencing another Leonardo da Vinci because all of his work was put down in these notebooks. What's another example of something that he invented? um, Well... These <laughs> these iron railroad car doors. I mean, because at the time they were made out of wood, and you, you know, so he he designed the doors of the cars to be more sturdy. There was um, uh, the most important things that he designed, though, were his own machines to wrap the cable, and those. I have one of those drawings in the book. He also uh, designed, you know, back at the time of the Civil War, these ironclad ships called, you know, we know about the Monitor and the Merrimack, so he has designs for those. But what I try to highlight in the book are some of his amazing drawings of these wire rope machines, which start out early on in his career as rather crude drawings on paper to what becomes these masterpiece drawings of how, and which are the machines that were used to wrap uh, the first cables on his early suspension aqueducts and, of course, the Brooklyn Bridge and the Cincinnati Bridge. So that was one character and whose personality and the way he went about earning each project, the kind of struggle and betrayal, his learning about capitalism and how people beat each other up and lied and cheated. I mean, he had to go through everything possible as an artist to get his work out. And so that was did just he, the dad. Yes. So did he answer an RFP for the Brooklyn Bridge or was he tapped yes. to do this? No. By the time the uh, the city fathers knew that we needed a bridge over the East River. Mr. Roebling had already dreamt of it. it. It's not like it wasn't in the back, you know, the back of his pocket. Was he still living in Pennsylvania at the time? Yes, he was still living in Trenton. That's where the family wire rope mill wound up after um, the early days in Saxonburg where he first began his uh, to manufacture his product, and I have pictures and the whole experience of going back to Saxonburg and what I found there. So it's you're really combining the contemporary narrative of my experiences with history in in tandem in concert with the visual images that I came up with, versus what I knew had happened there so many years ago. It's a fascinating thing to do as a visual artist is to try and go back in time and find these places and then conjure up these memories with these stories. Piecing together history. Yeah, but history that you really have to investigate for the... Mm -hmm universal truths because as we know especially now more than ever what unless the sources are correct then anything you read i mean we could i i i i hope at some point we could just have a discussion about the experience i had i i i termed i have a new term for the historical record. There's the real record, and then there's generic history. Because when I started doing my research, which took months and months, years, you wouldn't believe some of the things you read about these three people. And in one experience, when when the son gets incapacitated with Kaysan's disease, and of course I knew 
after reading, uh, even though Emily's record in that period of time is so, um, uh, I'm trying to find the word, spotty, we know that Washington suffered from some kind of depression. Mm-hmm. Um, it, although we didn't have Dr. Freud in his house, but he, he had some real issues, and his wife knew it, and uh, those that were close to him, like his chief assistant, uh, Farrington, wrote about that. I put that in the book as well. So the son who had to take on this task was very, very, very reliant, self-reliant like his father. But what Washington would do with Emily, especially when he had trouble writing and uh, seeing, his his sight was impaired, she would take down dictation. And it was really amazing to see at the other archive at RPI, you know, these little red books, and it's her handwriting, and it's his directives, because he had, over a period of six years, had to direct his crew down at the the construct the job site on the Brooklyn side, and Emily had to daily go down and give the his assistant engineers, C. C. Martin and Farrington, and these are all people he knew from RPI. He they they had a very close and trusted bond. So, in one of the things that I read, instead of the record which I held in my hand, they someone said, "Well, Emily Washington used to tap." the instructions to Emily on the side of his bed, you know, like, 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 oh, we need three wire cables, blah, blah, blah. What are you going to say? You know, it's, and then this is out there for people to read. I mean, that's, that, that's, and then sometimes I would stop and listen to these tour guides, you know, on the bridge, and the, those people, too. Why do you think it is the history got so muddled? Why do they Washington get so muddled? Together? I don't know, but I have a feeling it just has to do, again, with what I discovered, and that is, if you really want to know the truth about something, or as a visual artist, you know, you, you, you can't, it's like we live in an instantaneous culture, like there's no... You know, the the average time that when people go to a museum and look at a great work of art is like less than a minute. I mean, you know, it to me, we have lost the ability to just focus. It's almost like, you know, you have to be jealous of these Zen Buddhists or people that could just remain still because we are not about that and it's infected us and I feel that the dumbing down of the culture is due to the fact that we're just always on the devices and I'm not saying that I don't use them which I begrudgingly do but it's the idea of not focusing and spending time on a thing, whatever that thing is, and that's what this project, as mm-hmm. as as challenging as it was, what were your me. primary sources? Oh, well, <laughs> my primary sources were basically two archives. Okay, uh, one is Rutgers University. In fact, the curator of the Roebling Family Archive wrote the um, foreword for the book. The other major archive is the um, 
Rensselaer Polytech Institute, where the Roeblings deposited a huge amount of their technical writings and drawings and uh, Emily's scrapbooks, which no one ever mentions. And I, I remember the experience I had of being up there, and the curator up there was so nice. She let me photograph Emily's scrapbooks, which she had 11 years of clipping and saving every little thing that happened on the Brooklyn Bridge because she was a fierce protector and defender of that project. I want to talk more about the images in this book, your images specifically. You referenced earlier about going inside the belly of the Brooklyn Bridge. How did you manage to do that? Well, I love this story, and I hope no one from the city is listening. <laughs> well, it was, as I said, you know, the the construction crews moved in next door. They were working on this par- portion of the roadway, which I, I, I think it was the original roadway um, that separates the stone structure from the span. And one day I was walking home before they officially moved in, and one of the metal doors that's always locked was open. And I, I looked in, and I saw, you know, King Tut's tomb. I mean, I, I was so excited because I said, oh, my God, this is, you know, I've been staring at these these giant iron storage shutters for years. Maybe I could finally get in there. And then almost like... Immediately, the construction crew started moving in. So basically, I had to lobby the city for three months. I bothered them down there. I had to go to one of the um, offices, presented my work. I had to sign all kinds of waivers that if anything happened to me, it's not their responsibility. It's on you, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> and, um, you know, things like that. So I, I, I just was very relentless and so they allowed me to stay there for up to two months and do what I had to do. So and what are among the things that you've captured? Well, again, I think for me the most interesting thing about being in there was to finally find in uh, John Roebling's report to the board of the, the the stockholders, the new stockholders of the Brooklyn Bridge, because initially it was privately funded before the city took over. Um, and that whole part of the story about Boss Tweed and embezzlement, just like today, <laughs> we can interchange names, can't we? <laughs> oh, God, I'm going to cry. Um, what he proposed to do with the inside of the bridge when I started reading that report, it was so exciting to find, was that not only was his brilliance involved in the designing of the bridge itself, but inside he envisioned, just like we we have in Europe, the insides being used for commercial purposes, you know, for markets and things like that. However, his first notion, and this is how, in all these amazing drawings that they have at the municipal archives, it's like you can, I told the director, he has to make a book out of these these drawings, you know. He took his vision of lower Manhattan and Wall Street because he was very, he was very visionary, very Hegel, Hegel-esque. You know, he says, "Well, 
we have to create these treasury vaults because Wall Street and America, you know, it's going to grow and grow and grow. And the investors have to feel secure. They have to feel safe. So where are they going to put the gold? You know, where are they going to put the, the treasures and the riches? We'll put them inside the bridge. So they designed these cavernous interiors. I mean, on one level, there are these interiors that I, some of them were blocked off and the others were so dangerous because the floorboards were made of wood and you can fall through. That's, uh, you know, but these cavernous interiors reminded me of the Roman catacombs, you know, because there are tunnels and they lead here, they lead there. So I was assuming, you know, I had to channel Mr. Roebling (laughs) and say, is this where you wanted the gold bars, you know, because it's really like the thing about going back and, and trying to connect history, the historical record with what you're doing now you want to be sure, you know, mm-hmm. it, it was plausible because they were deep underground. They were at least 50 feet below these these tunnels that I photographed were at least 50 feet below. So the inside of the bridge, because of what I experienced in there, really truly served as a catalyst for all of these questions about all three of them. Yeah. You know? The book is In the Shadow of Genius, The Brooklyn Bridge and Its Creators. Barbara Mensch, thank you so much for coming in. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. In the Shadow of Genius is out now from Fordham University Press. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>